Well, I guess it's time to get started, huh? Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. You probably have a good idea of what I'm going to be talking about, considering what's been going on the last couple of weeks. And I guess I'll just start it right off the bat. These last few weeks, for those who don't know, if you're a subscriber and you're listening to this podcast for the first time, or if you're just listening to the podcast for the first time in general, I am a black man. I am a black man who is a media member. I'm also a black man who is an aspiring content creator on YouTube. And I felt that it was my responsibility to not continue anything else until I address what's been going on for the last few weeks. I just needed to be in the right headspace to do it because these last six weeks and especially these last two weeks have kind of just been rough for me and a lot of the black community. Um, I've described it to friends who have reached out to me that a part of my soul has been damaged and, but it's, but it's also burning with a white hot fire that I've never particularly felt before in my life. Longtime friends that have known me uh, have seen me get upset. You know, we argue, we fight sometimes. Um, I It's absolutely not hyperbole when I say that these last 10 days, especially the first week when all of this finally started hitting the fan, was the most angry I've ever been in my life by a pretty good margin, and it's definitely the longest I've ever been angry. So, the morning of May 26th, yeah, it was May 26th, which seems like, which honestly seems like two months ago, um, I woke up, I do overnight shifts, uh, so I woke up at 9 about nine o'clock in the morning, uh, that Tuesday morning. And I didn't even see the George Floyd video first. Um, I ended up seeing the Amy Cooper video first where she threatened to call the police falsely claiming that quote, an African American man is threatening her life, which was not true whatsoever. The guy was just in the park, bird watching, saw somebody violating leash, leash laws. And then for some reason, this lady thought that she could use her privilege and weaponize it to call the police. And thank God nothing happened. Because honestly, given what we have seen this entire decade, it could have very much happened to Christian Cooper, the African-American man who was birdwatching in the park. 
And before I even get to the George Floyd video, I just want to talk about this video in particular because it did send chills up my spine. This lady knew exactly what she was doing. It was a white woman. Her name is Amy Cooper. She knew exactly what she was doing. She didn't like that Christian Cooper was recording her. And then she told a blatant lie, calling 911, saying, quote, that it, I'm going to call the police and tell them that an African-American male is threatening my life. And just the way she emphasized African-American male is threatening my life sent chills up my spine. Because we've seen it over and over again. How many times it can go wrong for black people when police get involved. And then as she's calling him, she reemphasizes it again. Again. There is an African-American male threatening my life. And of course, if you watch the video, which thank God Christian Cooper was recording it, because I don't know how it would have turned out if he didn't have video. People already would have started making excuses, justifying, whatever which is how the playbook usually goes in these situations. And, you know, Amy Cooper lost her job. She lost her dog that she adopted from the SPCA, I believe. And it was just a terrifying and yet pointed message that she knew that she had the white privilege of calling the police, knowing how those situations usually turn out. And so then on top of that, <laughs> back to back, I see the George Floyd video, and I'm just going to be completely honest, I couldn't watch the whole thing. And I've seen new videos, new video angles, you know, video prior, there's a real, there's a good, um, there's a good visual investigation that the New York Times has on their YouTube page showing different angles leading up to the moment and leading up to the cops coming to the store. And then ultimately, of course, showing that Officer Derek Chauvin put his knee on his neck for nine minutes and I couldn't watch the whole thing because there was just something different about this video and you've become you become desensitized to it because you've seen it so many times but just the way that just the lack of humanity that was displayed in that video not only had his knee on his neck but he had his hand hands in his pocket smirk on his face i mean if he felt so threatened why would he have his hands in his pocket you're you're just going through all these thoughts in your head and all over a fake counterfeit $20 bill that actually wasn't counterfeit. And just another 
unarmed black man losing his life at the hands of police. And I think that video, like for a lot of other black people, that was the tipping point. You just couldn't, you just couldn't believe that this type of thing happened. There was just something, there was a malicious, there was a maliciousness and there was a dehumanizing and are all dehumanizing, but there was, there was just an element of dehumanization in this video that I couldn't stomach. I was sick to my stomach the entire day. And then the fallout that happens from it. Steven Jackson, former NBA player, one of the legit tough guys in the NBA, is actually childhood friends with this with this man, grew up with him, called him his twin. Which tripped me out because I'm sure a lot of NBA fans like myself were thinking that looks just like Steven Jackson. And then comes to f- come to find out that they were such close friends that they called each other twin. And seeing an OG like Steven Jackson cry like that for his dead friend was... It's heartbreaking. Just another black life senselessly taken away and then it and then of course because black people have seen this a million times we know the playbook it'll take a few days for the officers to even get charged after a few days of outrage of seeing another crazy and horrifying video then they get charged But then wait, then the autopsy report from the coroner's office will probably bring up that he has underlying conditions to go along with the fact that he died because he took a knee to his neck for nine minutes. And I don't care how healthy you are. If a human being is on your neck for nine minutes, I don't care how healthy you are. I don't like, but we know the playbook with that. They'll bring up other stuff or he, he used to do drugs in the past or, um, they'll bring out text messages. And that's the other thing that starts the smear campaign against his character begins to try to justify the crazy stuff that these officers do to black people. And boom, what happens? The exact same thing happens. You bring up George Floyd's criminal records, even though it has been repeated a thousand times that he corrected his mistakes. He was on the come up in life. He had a beautiful six-year-old daughter and was just making life in general better for himself. But no, in order to justify what these officers did, I don't even, the, the three officers, two of them were, the two officers that were on George Floyd's legs, and then the one officer 
who was standing there just watching, looking at citizens who were recording this, screaming at the officer to get off of them. They're just as compliant. But they do this stuff so they could justify the heinous stuff that these officers did to that man. It's cr- <sighs> I mean, I'm going to try to get through this today. I, I will. Because um, I am in a better headspace, but I'm still... My emotions are all over the place on this. But... But black people are just sitting here like an, like another one. Like, when is this going to stop? And it is also sad because at the same time, we are desensitized to this stuff. When Steven Jackson recounted the events of that morning, when he saw the video, he was initially, you know, waking up groggy. I'm sure you've all have had that before. You're groggy. Your eyes are kind of blurry from waking up. The first thing you grab is your phone. And you really can't see the screen, which is what happened with Steven Jackson. Somebody sent him a video and he basically said, like, wow, another one of these. And it was the reaction of like, you're desensitized to it. But then he completely wakes up once he realizes his phone is blowing up and people are saying the person in his video was his friend George Floyd. So you're so desensitized to it that you wake up in the morning and your eyes are groggy and you just watch the video or, you know, move past it like you're reading a morning text and you'll know you'll read it later because you'll be more awake, so to speak. That's how often this happens, that we're that desensitized to it. And because we know that people will never listen. No matter how many times we screamed it out. With Trayvon Martin. With Stephon Clark. Sandra Bland. The list goes on and on. And then we just get ignored. There'll be a few days of outrage. And then, of course, the excuses will start flying, which I'll talk about later, which I hate. And I'm going to debunk that. And then we just move on. Like nothing happened. No changes happen. None of that. And it's like, you mean to tell me as a black man that I have to decide to use I I have to decide to use debit for the rest of my life because if I have a $10 bill that I f- don't know is counterfeit could cost me my life like are you kidding me and if you're listening to that you're like well that's a little extreme and insane well that's because it is <laughs> and that's our reality We have to make insane decisions and numb ourselves to a lot of stuff just so we can live normally. 
And I think what this video did was for most of the black community, most of the black population, because there are a few that are lost, which I will also get into later. But I think it just brought everything out, pushing stuff down, growing up, learning how to live as a black as a black person. Learning how to just have stuff bounce off of you. Dealing with all types of racism, whether it be the subtle stuff that you deal with every day to the overt, just outright bigoted racism. All of that for 400 years, generation to generation up until now. It just boiled over. This particular video just boiled over. And that's why you've been seeing the protests all week, which is honestly, in a way, gives me some hope because I've never seen this many people peacefully assemble together. And yeah, you're going to have the rioters and looters, but you know what? I'm not even going to talk about that. Well, I will talk about it because I do because I will talk about how people tend to deflect whenever an officer kills an unarmed black man and usually the results that come after that is the excuses, the deflection. Well, was he compliant? It doesn't matter. Using a fake $20 bill does not mean you you can be sentenced to death. That's ridiculous. But yet people will still find a way to do it. And it's frustrating. And that's what we've been dealing with ever since we have had the ability to record with smartphones. That's the crazy thing. If we didn't have smartphones, none of this, this would have been kept in the dark for another decade. Because this has been going on for decades. And it's frustrating when you, a group of people get essentially told to F off for years, for centuries, literally centuries. And so these protests have showed me, showed me hope. I think it took a perfect storm of very messed up events. I mean, 2020 has just been hell. <laughs> it took the coronavirus pandemic to close everything down, which led to everyone being cooped up in their house, which led to record unemployment numbers that haven't been seen since the Great Depression. To see this video with no distractions, everything closed, Everybody saw, wow, this is what you've been talking about this entire time. This is, and if you had a little bit of heart, if you had a little bit of a heart, that video struck a nerve with you. And then, and honestly, the first few days were kind of surreal. 
because, well, I guess before I talk about the protests that have been, that have happened since Floyd's death, I mean, the month started off really bad with the Ahmaud Arbery news. And so, and then of course, Brianna Taylor gets murdered in her own apartment in her own apartment while she's sleeping because police did a no knock warrant on the wrong house, which the concept of a no knock warrant is crazy. Especially when you can botch it so badly like that, that you get shot eight times while you're sleeping her boyfriend called 911 because he had no idea who broke into the house. Into the apartment, excuse me. All of that stuff has led up to the... It, it, these last few months, quite frankly, have just been a boiling point. It just has. And what boiled over was 400 years of anger and frustration. And that's a type of anger and frustration I don't think anybody ever wants to see. If it manifested itself as a person, you would run clear to the other side of the universe, let alone the world. So I'm working later that night. And I'm just sick to my stomach. Watching everything unfold. The reaction to the story. And all that. And. Honestly. If you're a black person listening to this. I'm sure you felt this. But it started unearthing. All of the racist stuff you have dealt with in your life. Whether it was subtle. Whether it was outright. And I could tell you as a black man growing up in Bakersfield, California, which is a hotbed for racism, that's just an absolute fact. It's a hotbed for racism and white supremacy. I have lived there. I've lived there for 13 years, give or take. I grew up there. I started going to school in Bakersfield in fourth grade, and I transferred to a four-year university in 2012, fall of 2012, after going to Bakersfield Community College for a few years. And trust me, I dealt with it every day. Some of the stories I might bring up in this podcast, my friends who have known me for a long time, they'll probably, they'll be like, wow, well, I can't believe that happened to you. Because I'm going to go into a few of the subtle racist things that I have dealt with. As well as the overt, outright, just bigotry that I've dealt with as well. But that night, it unearthed a lot of racist memories that I had pushed down. that I The racist situations that I have dealt with. And I cried. And... I had to call my dad in the middle of the night. And I don't even remember what I said. I do remember 
asking him why <laughs> I do remember asking him why doesn't this country like us although I'm sure I probably cussed a bit I definitely did knowing myself but that was basically I do remember that was one thing I do remember asking and I had never at that point I had never felt so unwanted by a country that I don't even identify I'll be honest I don't even identify with being African American anymore I just want to identify myself as black or African oh but that's a little extreme right well when you've been told to F off your entire life in a country that's supposed to be the land of the free But then you look at how your people and you as a black man have been treated. Excuse me if I don't want to identify myself with a country that treats us like absolute garbage. No matter how much progress we've made, it's not racism didn't end when slavery ended. Racism didn't end when Jim Crow laws were abolished. It's still happening. And it's happening at a disproportionate rate to a group that makes up 13.6% of the, of the population. And so the next few days, I've kinda, I was kind of all over the place. And... You know, I had a few friends reach out to me, which I appreciate. And that's the other thing, too. These last few weeks, you find out who really rides with you, right? The people who still don't get it. Are they ever going to get it? Probably not. So I've realized who my true friends are, which isn't surprising because You know, growing up, I guess, I guess I can, I guess I can go into a little bit of myself growing up. So I moved to Bakersfield around 2000 and I really didn't start experiencing the brunt of rate blatant racism until I got to sixth grade in middle school. You know, white kids just casually throwing the N-word every day. Being called the N-word every day. I'm dead serious. Like, I had to go to the principal's office a few times to get them to stop doing that. You know, it got to a point where my mom... Who and you don't you don't mess with black moms. It got to a point where my mom had to go up there a few times. My first fight I ever got into was because a kid told me that my mom left me in the oven for too long. And I lost it. And in the middle of a test, I walked up to the kid who said it, and I just and I unloaded on him. And then 
it wasn't i i just loaded up a giant right hand and i just hit him went and sat back down on my desk don't know how the teacher didn't see it to be honest um she was on the other side of the classroom and then as i left the kid tried to as the as the bell rang and i was going to go to the ne- to my next class period the kid <laughs> tried to jump on my back and take me down and i'm a big dude by the way if you've seen me and in 6th grade i was not only a big dude but i was also a little chubby and it was a scrawny little kid and so of course he couldn't move me and he ends up in front of me and I hit him again. And then of course we both get suspended and then the vice principal had some kind of seminar on racism, which didn't do much. (laughs) Um, when I got back from suspension, he had a racism seminar and from that point on, I guess the school did one every year at the beginning of the year, which obviously did not work because it still went on. And as I got older, it was less of the overt stuff, like being called the N-word and being told that your mom left you in the oven too long. And then it, it became more of the subtle stuff, like white kids trying to be funny asking me oh is it true about black stereotype x (laughs) is this black stereotype true oh no offense but oh you're not like the other black people like what the what does that mean and it was that type of stuff that i dealt with every day You know, I grew up middle class in Bakersfield. Um, I should should have mentioned that from the jump. So I lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. I went to a predominantly white high school at Centennial. Where there was, if I had to give some type of estimation, I'd probably say there were probably about 15 black kids there, 15 to 20 black kids there. Out of what? Over 1,200 students? I mean, I did not see many black kids there. And just the subtle, just the subtle racism, like being told straight up by a white woman that she has, (laughs) she has a fear of black people and then you're supposed to sit there and just take it because again you're dealing with this subtle stuff every day and you just numb yourself to it because you want to try to live a normal life you know you don't want this to drag you down all the time and it's just like when you're growing up and your parents are teaching you the realities of being a black man and as a kid you're just like wait what like you can hate people hate people based on the color of their skin. There's certain disadvantages you have because of the color of your skin. And then as you grow up and you see it come to fruition and come to reality 
as you get older and more independent, you figure out your own ways to numb to numb yourself to it. I can remember my junior year of high school, these two white girls showed up in blackface for Halloween. One was Little Wayne. I remember it vividly. It was my art class. It was just after lunch period. And these two white girls came in with blackface. One was supposed to be Little Wayne, and one was supposed to be one of his black dancers. And you can imagine this they and you can imagine they went they dove deep into the stereotypes with that. They went off with their quote-unquote costumes. And I remember feeling a certain way about it. But of course you don't say anything because everybody else thinks it's funny and you're in the back feeling like crap. Then you go to then you go to administration and they're like, yeah, we've already heard. We'll deal with it. And then you see them still walking after school the next day, or you still see them walking after school later that day. You see, you still see them in their complete in their blackface cost quote unquote costumes. And keep in mind, I'm middle class. So I know for a fact that I didn't even have it as bad as the black kids in the inner city. Or in the poorer areas. And I still got it bad. Stuff as simple as walking into a clothing store. And everybody looks at you. Or clerk, the same clerk will come by three times in the span of like two minutes asking if I need help with anything. Like, and you say no for the 50th time. Being called a thug. Yeah, you can post up a screenshot of the definition of the word thug, but thug has been a coded word for black people for a long time. And I've been called that. Really, the only way to, I guess, gain some status was playing sports. And I wasn't the popular kid. I wasn't the... I wasn't the popular kid or, you know, I guess I, you could say I was neutral because, you know, I kind of knew everybody. I had my group of friends and I guess it just goes back to my, how I surround myself with friends. I may, now that I think about it, I guess I had a little bit of trust issues with people. And so the people who became friends with me, that's why I'm so loyal to my friends. Because I know those were the people that would like me for who I was. (laughs) 
and yeah, we would clown on each other and stuff like friends do, but I knew it wasn't from a malicious place or anything. I surrounded myself with a lot of diverse friends. Friends who in the same vein know the type of struggle, I guess, of living in Bakersfield. And I'm very, I, I have a very, I have close white friends too, uh, growing up in Bakersfield, I should add. I had a very diverse group of friends, but it also takes a lot for me to trust you. And I guess now that I'm thinking about it, growing up, the reason I was like that, and I'm still like that to a degree, was because you dealt with so much in a hotbed racist community. That you kind of just shelter yourself and you're looking out for yourself. And that's why I hung out with the same group of friends that I did every day at the lunch table. Where that was like the only place where we felt at home where we could clown on each other and stuff. You know, I made friends with Mexicans. I made friends with Asians. Made friends with black people. The few that were there. Some of them were my teammates. When I, uh, I played basketball up until my sophomore, junior year, or I quit before my junior year. But the few black kids that were on the team, You just br- it just brings up all these memories. And then, of course, one of the main lessons that a black parent teaches their son or their daughter is to what to do when you get pulled over by the police. I'm going to say the acronym DWB. A lot of you might not know what that means, but if you're a black person and you happen to stumble upon this episode, you know what I'm talking about. DWB stands for driving while black. And you could just get pulled over for no reason. And that happened to me. Happened to me and my, happened to me and one of my friends who will not be named. Friend who is half Asian, half white. Dad was a part of the police force, the Bakersfield Police Department. And, of course, the Asian features of my friend show out more than the white features. So, I say that because me and my friend were driving... We're driving in a residential area, and, you know, we're driving home from the store. We're driving home from that plaza. If you are from Bakersfield and you're listening to this, we were driving off of Fruitvale, 
from those plaza, that plaza full of stores on Fruitvale Road. And we were driving home past Centennial. I was in a red must, or I was in a red Mustang with my buddy. I was the passenger. You know, we're doing 25 or 35, whatever the speed limit was in that residential area. You can't really go too fast. It's a residential neighborhood. And we get pulled over. So cop rolls down or has us roll down the window. License, registration, the whole deal. He walks around the car for 10 minutes, probably. It felt like 10 minutes. We're wondering what the hell we did wrong. He's shining the light in the car, look, looking for stuff, looking for whatever reason to get us out of the car. Goes back to his car, comes back to the driver's side to where my friend is, and says something to the effect of your tail light is out, license plate light is out. Have a good one. <laughs> that was it. Oh, your light's out. Have a good one. And then we get home. Or we had a chance to get out of the vehicle at one point, And we look. Lights are fine. And now that I think about it, and after I told my dad this story, and he he's probably right, what probably happened was they ran the license plate number and saw that my friend was the son of an officer. And that was probably our saving grace. And to tell you that I was scared is an understatement. And that's the type of stuff that we have dealt with all the time. That's the type of stuff that black people deal with every day. Another example. It was about a month ago now. month and a half ago. There's an unprotected left turn as I leave my apartment. And there's traffic going both ways and you kind of have to, you obviously have to time it to complete your left turn so you can get on, so you can get on the other side of the street. And I cut it really close. This was, this is a situation, by the way, I will just say ahead of time, it was 100% my fault. I deserved to get pulled over for what I tried to do. So... There were, I cut it really close. I thought I could make it. I gunned it and barely made it. But in the process, I almost cut off a CHP officer. My timing was off. My death perception was off. I made a poor judgment decision. It was a dangerous turn on my part. Uh, I'll admit it. I was wrong. I shouldn't have tried to do it. I should have just waited a little bit longer for traffic to clear. But I thought I could make it. We've all done it before. You think you can make something. And you're not going as fast as you want to. Making the turn. And so I almost cut off the CHP motorcycle. And so of course the CHP motorcycle pulls me over into the nearest parking lot. And even though I knew it was 100% my fault. 
there is a chance in the back of my head, and it might sound dramatic to some, but for black people, it's not. There is a chance that I could die. And of course, the officer couldn't have been the nicest person. He, he was completely professional. He just said, hey, man, like you almost cut me off. What were you thinking? And by the way, when you get pulled over by the police as a black person, you're taught hands at 10 and 2, arms straight out. And then I even for extra effect, I spread my fingers out to let them know I'm not holding anything because I do not want anything to happen to me. So I'm stiff as a board by the time this officer comes up to my passenger side window because he pulled me over in a parking lot. He went up to my passenger side window and was like, hey, man, you almost cut me off. I just want to see your license and registration and make sure you're not inebriated, which I wasn't. Um, I was going to the store before I started my work shift and I tried to and I made a poor judgment. I'm trying to make a left turn. An unprotected left turn and trying to time the traffic. So I gave my license and registration. He said, be careful next time. Have a good one. And the relief that I felt after that was over was unlike any other. And I've been, and there was a similar situation when I lived up in Humboldt. I live in Sacramento now, but four years ago when I lived in Humboldt, and I was doing an overnight shift. The, I was board opping a San Francisco Giants game. Game went to late innings. And I was driving home on the freeway late at night. It was empty. And, you know, I went probably five or ten miles over the speed limit. Probably a little bit faster. And I got pulled over because I didn't see a CHP car on the shoulder of the highway. And he was basically like, look, I know no one's on the freeway. Just be careful. Please drive home safe. Didn't get a ticket or anything. And it was the same thing. Hands at 10 and 2. Fingers spread out. Arms straight out. Your back is stiff as a board. Like if you get one of, if you get one of those level measures or whatever that you could get at Home Depot, like my back was completely flat and leveled out. <laughs> and those are just a few examples. And and that's the reality of growing up as a black kid. And I mean, and I could go into a whole list of things. Like people in high school liking your culture and then telling you that you don't know shit about your culture. You know how offensive that is? Oh, you don't know real hip hop. I listened to Little Wayne. I listened to uh I listened to the Carter 3 once. You don't know real hip hop. That was the big Little Wayne was the big thing in high school. I was never really a big Little Wayne fan by the way, but I digress. Um 
So that, those are the type of memories that this pa- these past two weeks have unearthed. And the frustrating thing about all of this is that we have been trying to say this for a decade. But, and people will ask, well, friends, if you have, if you have friends who are black people, or if you're a friend of me and you're just like, well, why haven't I heard this story before? Well, you deal with so much every day. There's also an element of you don't want to be the guy who brings up race all the time. Because for so long, it's been uncomfortable for people. People don't want to confront that issue, which is a big problem with this country at large. They haven't confronted with the sins that they have done. And you don't want to bring it up all the time because you don't want to be seen as the guy who brings up race all the time. And you also don't want to be the guy who is, quote unquote, the Debbie Downer whenever you're hanging out with your friends. And also there's an element of it as you just want things to be normal. You're with your people. You're with the people who care about you. And so you kind of just, you don't bring it up. And that's the reality. And it's that type of stuff that has contributed to why this happens all the time. And then not only, so what you have been seeing these last two weeks is years of, 400 years of pent-up frustration. So whenever I hear people complain more about the rioting and the looting, which, by the way, I should reiterate, because of course what I'm going to say is going to be twisted out of context, I do not condone violence, rioting, or looting. But I get it. At least the first few days when this was happening, I got it. You peacefully protest. You can't... Oh, no, no, no. Not like that. Colin Kaepernick takes a knee during the national anthem. No, 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 no. You can't peacefully protest like that. NBA players wear I can't breathe warm-up shirts. No, 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 no. You You can't peacefully protest like that. When you get told no over and over again, and you told over and over again you can't peacefully protest, well, now guess what? This has everybody's attention now. And it might not have been the quote-unquote the right method, but when you tell a group of oppressed people for over 400 years to F off while giving them the double middle finger, guess what? Sometimes we've all been mad before in our lives. We've all been mad at some point to where you can't exactly think straight. When you got a group of people that have been mad for 400 years, generational ma- general generational anger by the way. There's no telling what could happen. And by the way, now the rioting and looting is being used as an excuse to deflect from the actual task at hand, which has happened again and again in these damn police in these damn police shootings of unarmed black people. Is deflection. It's well what about what about po- <laughs> these these two whataboutisms 
out of the thousand whataboutisms black people get thrown at every day whenever stuff like this happens, these two stick in my craw the most. Oh, well, did you know police officers kill white people more than they actually kill black people? And let me tell you something, as someone who was not very good at math growing up, and as someone who grew up with a dad as a math teacher, imagine all the fights we had trying to, with him trying to help me with homework at the dinner table growing up. Even I know you should give numbers context. Sure, the raw number might say that officers kill more white people than they do black people. But it's important to note that according to a 2019 U.S. Census, white people make up 76.5% of the population, while black people, as mentioned earlier, make up 13.6%. So it's not about the raw number. You got to use proportions and fractions. This is stuff we learned in middle school, guys. And if you, whatever average metric you want to use, per 100,000, per million, per capita, per whatever, the rate that black people get killed by police officers far exceeds any other race in this country. In 2019 alone, Black Americans are two and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white people. In 2019, black people made up 24% of all police killings. A population of 13% made up 24% of the total police killings. That's absurd. And that's the frustrating thing. People don't want to look at this as a race. People don't even want to look at this as a numbers thing, let alone a race thing. And then you realize why it's be why that whataboutism is being instantly thrown at you in self-defense. It's because it was never about that. It's because for some reason you want to counter the narrative, which isn't a narrative. It's fact. It's statistics. You go all the way back through this entire 2010 decade. There is a great website, mappingpoliceviolence.org. I recommend you check out the crazy statistics with this. When this stuff really started getting tracked, let's look at 2015. Unarmed black people in 2015 were five times more, were killed at a rate five times of that of unarmed white people. Police killed 104 unarmed black people in 2015, which was twice a week. <laughs> Nearly one in three black people were killed by police in 2015. And if you keep looking at every year after that, up until now, it hasn't changed. And then the other whataboutism we get thrown at is, well, what about the black on black crime? Don't you want to fix that? First of all, don't insult my intelligence. Don't insult my intelligence. Of course black people want black people to stop killing each other. That doesn't deflect from the bigger problem at hand, is that 
the people who are sworn to protect the community that they serve are killing off a minority group at an absurd rate. The minority is dying. Of course, we don't want anybody to die of police brutality, but there is a problem when a popul when a population, when a demographic that makes up 13% of the U.S. population is dying off at a rate that is far exceeds a population that makes up 76.5%. There is a problem with that. And also, if you really cared about black-on-black crime, like you allegedly do, do some research on that. Black people have been confined to poor communities for decades. And that's because we had a 400-year false start, from slavery, to Jim Crow, to the war on drugs, to housing discrimination, to redlining. And I'm educating myself on this every day, trying to learn. It's been a cumulative effect. So it's not just about racism is over because slavery is over or because Jim Crow is over. When you have been held back. A 400 year false start. It's a pretty simple thing to deduce that. A, peop, a group of people that have been pushed down for 400 years isn't exactly going to be on the same standing as the people who took over this country and have formed this country and ultimately formed the United States of America. We're not going to be on equal standing. That's just the facts. If you have a 400-year false start, it's gonna, there's a lag effect there. On top of the, all the policies after Jim Crow, that specifically targeted black communities. I mean, it's just incredible to me how over these years, all lives matter and all these whataboutisms were just thrown out in self-defense or as a defense mechanism whenever we point out, hey, we're getting killed at a disproportionate rate here. And when we say Black Lives Matter again, and it has been said a million times, there's articles on it, all this stuff. The crazy thing is the people who contradict this stuff or who deny that this stuff is happening, they don't even do the research. All it takes is Google. I pulled up like 12 articles that I could reference in this podcast right now within the span of 20 minutes before this show started. Now, granted, I've been to these sites multiple times because, again, I am a radio reporter. I'm a journalist, so I look at this stuff all the time. But this stuff is pretty easy to find on Google. But you have people saying all lives matter and throwing all these whataboutisms as a defense mechanism against the Black Lives Matter movement. We're not saying only black lives matter, which has also been said a thousand times. I don't know how many times we have to say it. I don't know how many more times we have to say it. We never said only black lives matter. Of course, all lives matter. But a certain segment of people are dying at an insane rate. And it's frustrating when 
we want to when we cry for help and then we just get kicked down the cliff again and then oh yeah my other favorite one it's like of course we should stop racism all racism is bad you're not winning the nobel peace prize saying that by the way like, we all know racism is bad. But I think it's more than fair to say that certain minorities in this country have faced a hell of a lot more racism than the one that makes up 76.5% of the U.S. population. And just some of these stats are insane to me. Like Minnesota, where the George Floyd murder happened. If you thought the US if you thought the US statistics are crazy, Minneapolis is even more crazy. There's an article on the New York Times. Minneapolis police use force against black people at 7 times the rate compared to when it gets used against white people. And then you keep scrolling down this New York Times article. Since 2015, the Minneapolis Police Department have documented using force about 11,500 times for at least 6,650 si- 6, of those acts of force. The subject of that force was a black person. By comparison, the police have used force about 2,750 times against white people who make up 60% of the Minneapolis population. So Minneapolis is 10 times worse than the U.S. average statistics. And that's what we've been dealing with as a country at large. By the way, it doesn't help that that the president of the United States has emboldened this type of behavior. It emboldens an insane person in Utah to show up with a bow and arrow at a protest. By the way, if you guys haven't even, if you guys haven't seen this, a white person showed up to a protest in Utah with a bow and arrow, screaming all lives matter. There's video of it. And he begins to cock back his bow and arrow. He woke up that morning deciding he's going to take a hunting bow to a protest to shoot some protesters, specifically a black person. Because as he cocked back his bow and arrow, a white person was running towards him to try to stop him. And a black person was running behind the, was running behind the white person charging at the guy with the bow and arrow. And the guy with the bow and arrow didn't even pay attention to the white person that was in front of him. He took aim at the black person behind him. Now, the video doesn't make it exactly clear if he hit him or not, but you see the black person fall to the ground after he fires the bow and arrow. And then, of course, everybody jumps on the guy. They flip his car over, and they burn it, light it on fire, the whole deal. On top of the fact, a TV station interviews the guy who brought the bow and arrow to the protest, has a bloodied face and everything from what just happened to him. They interview him like it's a post-game press conference. 
That is insanity. Now you tell me if a black person showed up to a protest cocking back a bow and arrow. Tell me you think he's getting out of that situation alive. Let alone getting a post-game interview. Oh, and then the vid oh, and then the the interview on top of that was a doozy. He just straight up lied. He just he said that he was in the car. He was saying he was protecting the protesters, saying all lives matter when they flipped the car over. And then he said he was attacked by two black African Americans. He didn't say African American or black. He specifically said I was attacked by two black African Americans. Keep in mind in the video. The only black person that was in that video was the one that he took aim at. It enables two people in Georgia to hunt down Ahmaud Aubrey like a damn dog. Just because he was jogging and looking into a construction house. I was where we were all teenagers. Any human with any sense of curiosity has wandered towards a house that was under construction. Me and my friend would go to this area where houses were being built and we would look inside construction houses all the time. I've seen couples walk in neighborhoods that are under construction and they're like, hey, look, babe. The, look at those houses being built over there. Maybe we should move here. I kind of like the style of these houses. Ahmad Aubrey was jogging, and because he, and because he was in the wrong neighborhood, he died. It's heartbreaking, man. And then, of course, they try to lie and say that it was under the veil of some form of vigilantism. Which, okay, that's BS in of itself. If that actually was the case, let's just humor them and say that it actually was the case. And he looked like the suspect. Which goes back all the way back to my time growing up in Bakersfield and assume, people assuming that you look like a criminal, by the way. They thought the guy was a criminal and they took matters into their own hands. They cornered him, they shot him, he tried to fight back and then they end up hunting him down and killing him like a dog. And then his mom had to sit through that testimony on Friday. Then in the testimony... Surprise, surprise. Before Travis McMichael delivered the fatal shot to Ahmaud Aubrey, the testimony quote, McMichael said, I can't even say it. Before delivering the final blow, Travis McMichael called Aubrey, quote, fucking After three blasts from his shotgun, left Aubrey dead in the streets. And black people knew this. We knew it was an act of racism. We knew that they did not like a black person in the neighborhood. Just wandering into a construction house. And then to add insult on top of injury, that video, that video happened in February. Those guys 
walked around scot-free for two months and it took a video surfacing in the first week of May and a week of outrage for them to finally do something in Georgia. This happened in February. So as you can imagine, it's been a rough two weeks, six weeks for me and a lot of my brothers and sisters. I went to, I went to a George Floyd. I went to a George Floyd sit-in near Mayor Steinberg's house. About a thousand, I'd probably say over a thousand people showed up. I ended up leaving about an hour before curfew was in effect. And they had us lay on the ground for eight minutes and 46 seconds in silence for Mr. Floyd. And you don't realize how long eight minutes and 46 seconds are until you do this. And then you realize that Mr. Floyd had a knee on his neck for that long. And it's just heartbreaking. There is a distrust among the black community and police officers. There has been for a long time. And I think one of the other reasons that black people get shouted back at them, get shouted down whenever we bring this stuff up over the decades, is because I do think there is a little bit of a God complex with the police department. This country loves police. There was a recent poll. It was a New York Times article. They they cited a study from peoplepress.org. Americans trust police officers, military leaders, and local officials more than members of Congress, tech journal or tech leaders, and journalists. Police officers are the most one of the most trusted institutions in America for a long time. So anytime you criticize them or you want to hold them accountable, it's seen as an affront when it's perfectly okay to criticize and hold people accountable that are supposed to protect you. I mean, the chief of police in Milwaukee recently compared all the criticism that police departments have been facing the last few weeks he compared it to Jesus Christ being crucified 2,000 years ago. As soon as he started off his quote by saying 2,000 years ago, I immediately I immediately was like, you've got to be ki- kidding me. And look, in fairness to the police chief, he was distraught because one of his own was injured in these protests. 
But that was irrelevant to his initial point of saying police departments are being crucified like Jesus Christ, because he later goes on to say that they're being crucified because of the rioting and the looting and they're being taken advantage of. No, that's not it. That's not relevant to what you were just saying earlier. All you had to do was just cut out that part and be like, look, people are taking advantage of the rioting or take people are taking advantage of the protest by rioting and looting. You just wanted to bring up that they were being crucified like Jesus Christ. And that goes back to what I'm saying about the criticism and holding police officers accountable. I think it's completely fair to do so. And now that people are realizing that this has been happening to us forever. This doesn't feel like a social media bubble thing. Because like I said, everybody's cooped up in the house. Everybody. People are out of work. People are mad because they can't work and can't make their money to survive. Everybody saw this video. And this is why this is one of the few times as a journalist where I would say, go to Twitter or watch your local news channels. One of those two. Your local news station or go to Twitter. Because the national media at large only cares about the rioting and the looting. Although that's kind of died down in the last couple of days. Which is good. Because that means people are now focused on the message. And a lot of that is actually being backed up. So I saw a recent statistic. If I could just. I have so many tabs open. Because I. I've just been rereading just all this stuff. Um, Okay, here it is. So, now, a new poll shows that a 57% majority of Americans think police generally treat white people better than black people. Black people, of course, and no surprise, in particular, say this at 78%. But that 57% number is important because that's up like 20 points from a recent from another polling on this topic back in 2016, I believe. The polls that have been coming out after the after all of this has happened has been insane. The public opinion the public opinion now is the popular the majority opinion now is that finally, yes, people are seeing that black people are being treated at a disproportionate rate by officers compared to other ethnicities. So that's why this is kind of giving me hope. The protests have led to changes like the Minneapolis City Council announcing their intention to defund and dismantle the city's police department, which there's a lot of debate about that going back and forth. I honestly haven't done nearly as much research as I need to do before I even have a stance on it. I do think we need to re I do think their police reform is in order and I do think that needs to happen. And I do have my own opinions on solutions such as, you know, officers from certain communities being assigned to those very communities because they know the people there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But It's led to change like this because Minneapolis has had a history of this. And it hasn't been working. 
and so they're trying something new. So in an area where this is most prevalent, given the stats that I cited earlier, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because I think it'll be a fish tank experiment, so to speak. Because we can argue about whether you, you agree or disagree with it all you want. We don't know unless you try, right? And I think at the very least, at least Minneapolis city officials are at least listening. There's a lot of work to be done, but I'm glad that people have become more aware. I appreciate I just want to give a little bit a little bit of advice to the white people that I know or any white people that are listening to this particular episode and you're reaching out to your black friends. I want you to realize that there is no please don't blame them for however they take it because I know black people who don't want their white friends to text them because they see it as performative. And I think that reaction is completely justified. Me personally, I appreciate all my friends reaching out to me because I needed it. And also, I think it's important now that now that everybody sees that this is a problem, that white people use and weaponize their privilege in a positive way. And I think that's the other big thing, too. I think white people have realized that when we say white privilege, we are not using it to insult you. We are simply saying that you have certain advantages because of the color of your skin, while we have certain disadvantages because of the color of our skin. And it's been refreshing to hear when I've listened to sports podcasts in the last week, hearing reporters who are white, predominantly white, who cover a predominantly black sport, whether it's basketball or football. It's been refreshing to hear white reporters say, look, I've had to learn over the years that whenever people say that I'm privileged because I'm white, it's not just about class status. It's not just about because there's poor white people and there's there's obviously white people of all different levels of class. But it's not just about financial class or social status. It's about being able to walk into a store and not being instantly persecuted because you're black. It's about driving around and when you see a police officer, you don't tense up. Like, you don't tense up because you know something could happen to you. And it's been refreshing to hear people be open now to having these uncomfortable conversations and looking at the sins of this country. And so I think it's important for white people to help us in this fight because their voice can help us project in a more loud, more pronounced, and in more unique ways than what black people have been trying to do for a decade. Well, not for a decade, but for centuries. But I also understand the black, I understand a part of the black community that is exhausted and tired, and they don't want those texts or they don't respond to those texts. Just under, it could, ver- if you have, if you know, 
if you have multiple black friends, the responses may vary. Just realize that there is no right or wrong way for them to react to this because this is an emotion. This is an emotional baggage that has just exploded that we haven't felt before and that, quite frankly, we're uncomfortable with. I was uncomfortable with how much how angry I was. I was uncomfortable with how long my anger has lasted. I'm just at a state now where I can think more clearly and think in a with a clarity to be able to do this podcast because I had to say something about it. But I do hope this I do hope this leads to some type of change eventually. It it just feels different. I mean, you've got people who you've got historians who have been tracking protests and movements forever saying that this is the largest and most diverse protest they've ever seen in their life. And the energy is still going, which is, it's crazy. Never, and that's one of the things I worry about is that while this has been in the news cycle for a bit now, I have, I'm worried that the energy will die out, but there's also a part of me that, that says 400 years of pent up frustration is the perfect fuel to keep this going, no matter how exhausted and tired we are. Of everything. I think at this point. I've been rambling for a bit. I've probably went over 40 minutes. Than what I've wanted. Than what I wanted to. But if you're able to. Listen through this whole episode. Thanks. Um, It's kind of therapeutic for me in a way. I tried not to cry or anything so hopefully you don't hear my voice quiver at any point in this podcast although you probably will I'll probably listen back and be like wow I can't believe uh, I'm just still we still got a lot of work to do and we gotta be better Educate yourself. The best thing is that people who are on the fence, who were on the fence on this, well, they have no choice now. There's a, the fence has been knocked down. There's either right or wrong. And that's how black people have been feeling. And you can't blame them for it. The small businesses will build back up. GoFundMe, the GoFundMes that I have seen this week, small businesses that have had their stuff destroyed, they are crushing their GoFundMe goals. We can build that back. We can get people's jobs back. We can rebuild. You can't reborn a life that's been lost. And I just want that to be the focus. That's what the focus of these protests are. And by the way, just one more note. The pro the looting and the rioting that's been that had been going on the few days the few days after the the initial protest happened in Minneapolis. Again, this is why I would say go to Twitter so you can actually get video from people who are on the streets because, again, 
everybody is on it now. There's nothing better. We have nothing better to do. Better to do. You'll see that it's undercover cops laying down pallets of bricks on corners of streets. And you see that it, also it's white supremacist groups or in some cases Trump supporters. Not all Trump supporters because I know people are going to lock onto that. Not all Trump supporters, but Trump supporters coming to stores at, going to stores during these protests and breaking windows and it's the black people that are trying to stop them because they know that if you keep doing that it's going to take away from the message of the protest but thankfully these last three or four days or so there hasn't been any major coverage of the looting and rioting also i would say go to twitter because there is a master account from a reporter i believe he has kept track of every video of every instance of police attacking peaceful protesters, attacking reporters and journalists, violating their constitutional rights. Which as a journalist, I am just add on to the to the just add on to the level of me being offended that my fellow reporters are being attacked with rubber bullets for being there covering the story that is within their constitutional right. There's vi- there is over I think that account now has over 400 videos of police brutality on protesters which kind of that was the other whataboutism is the bad apples argument. We have seen that it's not just it's not just a bad apples thing. And there's also I would also encourage you to just Google all types of articles on police culture, how good officers are scared to report terrible behavior from their colleagues because they're higher up, they're afraid their higher-ups will just boot them off the force and fire them. There's all kinds of stuff like this. And that's why we need reform, police reform. And again, I'm not arguing one way or another to disband the police or whatever. I haven't even done enough research on that. At the very least, we need reform. Because people are scared. And there is a huge distrust, more than ever. And based on these recent polls that have been skyrocketing since this happened, I imagine that distrust is not just going to grow among the black community, but among the white population as well. Anyway, I know I said I was going to sign off like 10 minutes ago, but I'm really going to sign off this time. Thanks for listening. We're going to go back to our regularly scheduled programming. My name is Jordan Christmas. And I'm a proud African. And Black Lives Matter. Period. It's not up for debate anymore. I'm going to let this thing record for 8 minutes and 46 seconds in honor of George Floyd. So you're going to be hearing 8 minutes and 46 seconds of silence after this episode is done. So thanks for listening and I'll talk to you guys soon.